The Bible is full of images of living in the overflow of God's blessing. The prophet Malachi describes an uncontainable heaven burst of blessings poured out upon us. In Psalm 23, David describes our cups overflowing while we are being pursued by the goodness of God. Jesus was an overflow specialist. He said that he came to give us an overflowing, abundant joy, and that if we would just believe in him, that rivers of life would overflow from our hearts. He came to bring us full life. But the Bible makes it incredibly clear that God fills us so that we will overflow for others. He loves us so that we can love others. He forgives us so that we can forgive others. He gives us life so that we can be life givers. He blesses us so that we can be a blessing. We live in the overflow so that we can live generous lives. This is not about what God wants to get from you. It's about what he wants to give to you. Generous people simply live life, love life, and give life better. Join us for 50 days of teaching, practicing generosity, and generosity challenges that put a smack dab in the middle of God's overflowing generosity. Hey, welcome to Calvary. Whether you are joining us online or in one of our gatherings, you are so welcome. Last weekend, we started our 50-day journey to a generous life. We started with the practice of gratitude. And if you've been following in the devotional guide, gratitude has been our theme all week long. We're grateful because our God is a God of overflowing blessings. In fact, that's our journey's destination, right? Living in the overflow. And, and let's be honest, we live in a culture of overflow. We value muchness. We're doing everything we can to live in an overflow of muchness. I mean, think about it. Starbucks does not have a star, a store on every corner because they have good coffee. It's because they have a muchness of coffee. According to their chief marketing officer, there are 80,000 drink combinations. I'm so stinking boring. All I want is coffee black. When I could have a tall non-fat latte with caramel drizzle or a grande ice sugar-free vanilla latte with soy milk or a non-fat frappuccino with extra whipped cream and chocolate sauce, what's the point of that? Or how about a venti ice skinny hazelnut macchiato sugar-free syrup extra shot light ice? No, <laughs> we celebrate muchness. We fill our lives with a muchness of stuff. Researcher Gene Arnold said, U.S. households have more possessions per household today than any society in global history, all over, everywhere, for all time. I mean, come on, we have 3.1% of the world's kids, and they own 40% of the world's toys. We have over 28 million personal storage units for all the stuff we can't fit in our homes. And it's not just coffee and stuff, right? I love muchness. I like to go to restaurants and see piled high plates of muchness. I love big crowds at football games and Christmas Eve services. Social media is all about muchness. Friends post likes, muchness wins. Influencers have the most muchness. And yet, with all the muchness, we often find ourselves with curiously unsatisfied souls and ungenerous lives. We we realize those two go together, right? Unsatisfied souls and ungenerous lives. In fact, it's interesting. While you would think that the more muchness we have, the more generous we would be, studies actually show that the more we have, the less we give as a percentage. E even though the muchness we have doesn't quite... <laughs> 
hit the itch of satisfaction, I think sometimes we think maybe just a bit more. And so we're afraid to give away what we have, but it doesn't ultimately satisfy us. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's words, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And I got to tell you, you were made for another world. And there is a richness to that world, a muchness to Christ that Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 makes all of our muchness, all our riches seem like rubbish in comparison. And when we live in that overflow, it's almost like we can't help but be generous. Now throughout this journey, each week we'll cover the practices of a generous life. Last week was gratitude. Can't be generous without gratitude. This week is forgiveness. It's not just about giving money, but giving grace, forgiveness. But as we focus on the practices, it is vitally important that we don't miss the source. That's the treasure. And the source of generosity is found living in the overflow of God. Not not in the overflow of the muchness of stuff, but living in the overflow of God, the muchness of God, his uncontainable blessings. And before we go any Further, let me clarify. What, when I talk about the blessings of God, I'm not talking about money or all the things that bring us comfort or the power to stay in control. The blessings of God are so much better than that. The blessings of God are the shalom, the fullness of God. It's joy and peace and hope and courage and love and human flourishing, thriving even in difficult times. It's wisdom. And let me tell you, we, we have a God of overflowing muchness. In, in Malachi chapter 3, God dares his people to try to out, go ahead, try to outgive me with a promise and see if I won't open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing that cannot be contained. In Psalm 23, David describes God as the one who causes our, our cups to overflow and who pursues us with his goodness. In Ephesians 3, Paul prays to the God who is able to do more than we've ever asked for or could even begin to imagine. Oh my God, our God is a God of overflow. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul writes, God is able to make all grace overflow to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, notice how many alls there are, having all that you need, you will overflow in every good work. I love this picture that Jesus gave in John 7. He said, believe in me and rivers of living water will overflow your heart. But, but here's the deal. The overflow of God requires the presence of God. It's, it's not a boxed up gift that he, he gives to us separate from himself. It's an overflow of life from him, from his presence. We got to get close if we want to live in the overflow. It's the unmistakable presence of God that brings the uncontainable blessings of God. In fact, the, the presence of Christ is God's greatest blessing. And when our hearts are strangely dissatisfied, even though we have off the chart stuff, it's, it's actually Jesus we miss. It's his glory that our hearts hunger for. I mean, let let me make this abundantly, transparently clear. Nothing matters more to the life of the church than the presence of Jesus. There's so many things we do that we call church, but, but the bottom line is if Jesus is not present, if Jesus is not in it, it's not church. It might be a wonderful nonprofit charity that's making a difference in the world, but it will never be a supernatural force that shapes a different world. It It might be a good place to find a friend, but it won't last past the first offense without Jesus. It might be filled with music and words that inspire and lift up your heart, but if we don't hear and worship Jesus, we'll actually leave with less than what we came with. 
Nothing is more important than the presence of Jesus. No Jesus, no overflow. So all of that to set up these words from Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, verses 18 through 20, where Jesus says this, And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. In our midst, there he is. Now, this is a, a word about prayer, but it's also a word about community. This, this word agree is the word symphonio. Think symphony. This is deeper than mere verbal agreement, saying the same thing. It's a heart issue. Are we together in heart? You don't just come together and give each other the, the same sheet music. You, you learn each other's hearts, your styles. You allow yourself to be led by the same conductor. That's the kind of community that Jesus is talking about here. And when hearts are of one accord, there is a beautiful music that draws Christ in and opens up the gates of heaven so that what's up there can come down here. God's uncontainable blessings come from God's unmistakable presence. And his presence, his presence comes in community. Now, why is that important? Well, don't miss the practical truth flowing from that statement. Here it is. We cannot live in the overflow alone. This is not a solitary activity. I'm not saying that you can't experience God by yourself. I'm saying we can't live ultimately in the overflow of God's blessing and grace alone. Living in the overflow and the generous life that results from it requires community. Can't live in the overflow alone. And if we're willing to lower our self-defensive shields, we can see, can't we, that the American church hasn't done such a great job of living in community the last few years. Man, we've been so quick to divide and so slow to forgive. We've let everything from mass to politics divide us. <laughs> and we're coming into another political year. And when we divide, we, we get stingy with grace and community is broken and we step out of the overflow. But, but here's the hard reality of Community. The, the hard reality of community is that sometimes community is really hard. We, we offend and, and we get hurt and we quit on relationships and we dismiss and, and we divide. But, but in Matthew chapter 18, read the whole chapter later, Matthew chapter 18, Peter's kind of starting to get what Jesus is talking about, this connection between the presence of Christ and, and a community that is overflowing with generosity and grace. And so he basically says to Jesus, Lord, let me just give you a hypothetical situation, not involving me, of course, but just suppose that one or two of those two or three friends that are gathered together, suppose one of them has done me wrong. I, I understand. I, I, I got to forgive but what's the limit? Jesus, how about if I forgive twice as much as everybody else and then I add one for good measure? See, the rabbis of Peter's day thought that the limit of forgiveness was three. It was kind of the Jewish equivalent of the three strikes law. So in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 22, it says that then Peter came to him and, and, and said, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, Jesus replied. Seventy times seven. <laughs> And, and I, I just, I imagine Peter in this moment, I kind of think Peter's pretty proud of himself for saying seven times. I mean, that's a lot. For, for a split second when Jesus says, no, Peter, I, I bet Peter's thinking, oh boy, this is good. Jesus is just going to say, just, just two or three. I'm going to get extra credit here. And said, Jesus says, no, Peter, 70 times seven. It's like, Jesus, that's like, 
That's 490. I mean, do you mean like in a day or a year or a lifetime? Because Jesus, 490 times, that's a little bit hard to keep track of. Seven times is easier to keep track of. Or or we could just go back to three. (laughs) But don't you suppose that's the point? That really, in essence, Jesus is saying, don't don't keep track. Jesus is saying, hey, you guys, I, I want you to move from seeing forgiveness as an obligation to keep track of to seeing grace as a way of life. Never quit forgiving because community depends upon it. And when we live in community, Jesus shows up and And we live in the overflow, but community requires grace. It requires grace from you, and let's be honest, it requires grace for you. Friendships need grace, marriages and families need grace, neighborhoods and workplaces need grace, and make no mistake, churches require grace. There will never be a time this side of death where your relationships do not require grace from you and for you. Community requires grace, and I know it's difficult. I do. I've talked to some of you. I I know from my own experience, sometimes loving somebody else is hard work. The call to forgive 490 times is not a a call to a new number, just a call to persevere, to quit keeping count, but don't quit loving. Give grace. Be generous with forgiveness. I mean, just take a moment right now and ponder the relationship in your own life that is currently bringing you the most hurt or the most annoyance, the most frustration, the relationship that if you could walk away from, at least for a time, you would. I mean, when you think of this person, your heart kind of speeds up a little bit, the adrenaline flows, maybe you feel a tinge of anger or a a seed of bitterness or even more despair in your heart that it's never going to be different. I mean, just rate your level of grace endurance. How generous are you with grace, with forgiveness? Just fill it out. Put a number down. My grace on a scale of 1 to 490. How gracious am I? This is a pretty important concept, and Jesus wanted to make sure we got it, so he told a story. In verses 23 through 25, he says this. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who's decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. And in the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions. In fact, literally in today's dollars, it'd be billions of dollars. He he couldn't pay, so the king ordered that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. In essence, he's put into debtor's prison. That's what they had back in those days. Liquidated everything, debtor's prison. Now, what's the point of this story? The point is this. My sin is my debt, and my debt is ridiculously un unpayable. It's absurd. See, sin is what I do that I shouldn't do, what I should do that I don't do. And beyond that, even it's my my attitudes, my bad attitudes and dark thoughts and moments of selfishness. It's the greed that allows others to starve while I throw my food away. My sin is my failures, my my lies. It's my habit of keeping track of other people's wrongs in order to be able to wave them in public when I need to look a little bit better than I am. My sin is my debt. Every time we cheat just a little on our taxes, every time we treat our children too harshly and call it discipline, every time we gossip or withhold love, every time we lie, every time we look at that junk on the internet, every time we forget to say thank you, we build up this mountain of debt. And and the, the debt of sin, it always, always, always breaks community. My sin is my debt, and my debt is ridiculously unpayable. 
That's Jesus' story. And so it's time to settle accounts. And imagine you're this guy. You, you come before the CEO of the company. Your hands are sweaty and empty. You've lost more money than the company will make in a 100 years. Modern-day equivalence is about $3 billion, and it's all gone. His debt was ridiculously unpayable. No way, no how, no never. Jesus says, here's what the kingdom of heaven is like. There's a debt that you can't pay. See, you know, I think one of our problems is that we think we're all basically good and created in the image of God you have. We have this incredible potential for good, but in the process of turning our own way, we also have this incredible capacity for sin. In fact, the people around me sin because of my ridiculous debt. He couldn't pay, so the king ordered that he, his wife, his children, everything he had be sold to pay the debt. And how many times have you heard someone say, have I heard someone say, but, but I'm not hurting anyone. Yeah, I had an affair, but I didn't hurt anyone. Yeah, internet porn, but nobody suffers. I have an anger problem, but it's not like I've ever killed anyone. But for those who are willing to hear it, the reality is that others suffer for our sin. I've had to deal with that in my relationship with Lynn, with my kids, with staff, with friends. If you've never had to deal with that, you're either a lot more like Jesus than I am, or you're just blind to how your sin causes others to suffer. See, the totality of our sin is an unpayable debt, and the only way to deal with an absurd, unpayable debt is is debt forgiveness. So what did this guy do? Look at verses 26 through 27. In Matthew 18, 26 through 27, it says, "But, but the man... The man fell down before the king and begged him, Oh, sir, be patient with me, and I'll pay it all back. And then the king was filled with pity. Literally, it says he had compassion for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. The king had compassion. He forgave the debt. Now, that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the overflow of grace that that God offers to each and every one of us. And it's just as much for you and I as it is for this guy in the story. In fact, whisper this to yourself. My debt is more than I can imagine. Whisper that. My debt is more than I can imagine. But now now say this. Grace overflows more than I dared hope. My debt is more than I can imagine, but the grace of God overflows more than I ever dared hope. The Apostle Paul says that God forgives us according to the riches of his grace. The overflow of his grace is more than I ever dared hope. When we truly dive into God's overflow of grace, we, we tend to walk away thinking, man, this is too good to be true. He doesn't even keep track. See, Peter wanted to know the limits. How often must I forgive? And I think Jesus knew that the day would soon come when Peter's focus would turn from the limits of his own forgiving to the limits of God's forgiving. In those moments after a rooster would crow, as Peter denied for the fir- third time that Jesus was even his friend, See, I think in this moment of telling this story, this moment of conversation between Jesus and Peter, I think Jesus wanted Peter to remember there is a grace-giving, heart-forgiving gospel good news that is just too good to be true. And let me tell you, if there's hope for a billion-dollar debtor and there's hope for Peter who denied Jesus, then there's hope for you and I. We just need to get good at stepping into God's overflow of grace. This is God's heart for us. He released him and forgave his debt. Have you ever experienced that kind of grace? It's available. 
you know, some of us here, we, we think we're basically good people. No huge debt of sin. And and in this moment, honestly, I'm, I'm not even going to try to convince you that your debt is ridiculously unpayable. Instead, for a moment, let me, let me just talk to those of you who feel that your sin is too great. You, you've hurt too many people. You've, you've failed too many times. You, you've betrayed someone over and over and over again. And, and you're just thinking, surely God has turned his back on me. Would just as soon leave me in prison. I, I've got a record and God's keeping track and... I'm never going to get past it. Listen to me. God is for you. The heart of the king is moved by your condition. He stands ready to forgive you and release you. The debt has been paid. Your biggest sin, your greatest failure, your deepest regrets, past, present, and even yet to come, they're all all covered by this overflow of much grace from God. He's paid your unpayable debt. But for the gift to be received, you got to acknowledge how much you need it. you got to ask him for it. Did you notice what the guy said to the king in the story? He said, oh, sir, be patient with me. I'll pay it all back. <laughs> I mean, the king's going to liquidate this guy, sell his family into debtor slavery. And, and so he falls to his knees and he begs, but he begs not for mercy. He begs for patience. Just give me a little bit more time, king, a little more time. I'm just about ready to hit it big, a little more time. I'll make it up to you. I'll pay you what I owe you. I mean, isn't that incredible? His pockets were empty. His debt was in the billions. He didn't need time. He needed a miracle. He didn't need patience. He needed grace. He didn't need a a salary. He needed a gift. He would never hit it that big. He needed debt forgiveness. And he was offered what he needed. The king had compassion and forgave the debt. It's like hitting the lottery. He he could have walked out of that, that throne room $3 billion richer and And so what did he do? Look at Matthew 18, verses 22 through 33. It says, But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. A few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged him for a little bit more time. Be patient. Words sound familiar. Be patient and I will pay it. He pleaded, but his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the the man arrested and jailed until the debt could be paid in full. And when some of the other servants saw, saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him what had happened. And then the king called the man in, the man he had forgiven, and he said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant like I had mercy on you? See, this guy couldn't stand the thought of having his debt forgiven because that would be the equivalent of saying, I failed. I need help. I'm broken. I'm not all that. Think about this for a moment. When people come into contact with the church, when when people come into contact with Christ's followers and they're not overwhelmed with the flow of grace that comes from us, and perhaps it's because we have not yet owned up, we haven't come to grips with how much we need the muchness of God's forgiving grace for us. See, unreceived grace leads to unforgiving living. And ultimately, what we find is that unforgiving living leads to unreceived grace. It's just a cycle. 
If we can't be generous with grace, if we can't forgive, we might not be living in God's overflow. I've, I found that what it takes to offend us is often a measure of how much we treasure the grace of God. And ultimately, we will have a hard time capturing the heart of our neighborhoods, of our communities, if we haven't been personally overwhelmed by the overflow of God's grace to the point where forgiveness just flows. See, it's a choice. I'm not saying it's an easy choice. I'm just saying it's a choice. When, when someone hurts us, when, when someone sins against us, offends us, we, we have a choice. And, and if we won't forgive, the end of the story is prison. In, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 34 through 35, it says, Then the angry king sent the man to prison until he paid every penny. That's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters in your heart. We have a choice. Live in the overflow or live in prison. <laughs> See, you, you, don't, you don't forgive just for the other person. You give, forgive for you. We have a choice, community or isolation. You, you may remember the, the name Amber Geiger. She was the white Dallas police officer about five years ago, killed Botham Jean case became a national story because of the circumstances, which included allegations of racism. Botham Jean was an African-American, and, and Geiger shot and killed him in his own apartment, saying she had mistakenly entered the wrong apartment, thought it was hers, and thought he was a burglar in her home. Geiger was sentenced to 10 years in prison, and, and many people are protest because so many thought the sentence was far too lenient. But I don't know if you've ever seen this video. Inside the courtroom, there was another voice that was heard. A choice was made. Brant, the brother of Botham Jean, spoke in the courtroom at Geiger's sentencing, said he forgave Amber, didn't wish her harm, wanted her best. And he encouraged her to look to Christ, that if she looked to Christ, God would forgive her too. He, he told her that he, he loved her as a person. And then he asked the judge if he could go over and give Geiger a hug. I mean, you, you could hear the weeping in the courtroom as he walked over to hug her. Because that kind of forgiveness, that kind of grace, it just it reminds us that there's something more. I mean, even the judge was wiping tears from her eyes. In fact, the judge gave Geiger a Bible and told her, Reading this book is your job for the next month. Start with John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. I don't really like the conclusion of Jesus' story. If it was a movie, it would be one of those that I'd walk away from kind of rewriting the conclusion. I like happy endings. This one isn't. This one ends where too many of us live because the man did not receive God's grace and he could not give God's grace, both people ended up in prison. Jesus' message is pointed and clear. If you don't forgive, you end up in prison, the prison of bitterness and a, a hard heart. If you don't forgive, you end up shackled by your own heart. Only two options, forgive or build a prison out of bitterness and then live in it. So who do you need to forgive? I want you to think about that question and maybe even write down a name as Bill and Sarah share a bit of their own generosity of grace story. I'm Bill Ewing, I'm the gathering pastor here at Calvary Tyrone, and this is my wife, Sarah. And um, I grew up uh, in poverty with a single mother uh, who was 
a very young mother, had me at 17, and um, my mother and my, my father got divorced uh, when I was five, and um, it was a very uh, relationship filled with uh, physical and emotional abuse. Uh, my mother to my, uh, my father to my mother, and as well as to my younger brother and I. And I remember as a young kid, I, I always had the desire to kind of be a people pleaser. And uh, my early understanding of love was uh, I had to earn it. So I went to school and did the best I could, get good grades and uh, behave myself and you know make sure I didn't get into any trouble. And biggest moment for me as a child happened when one of my uh, mother's uh, boyfriends uh, abused me to the point where um, Children Youth Services was involved in. It was after that point, which was about third grade, um, my kind of personality, my understanding maybe of people and how I just kind of openly tried to trust and love people changed. Um, I then started to understand like, I was dealing with a lot of anger because we really didn't talk about those kind of past hurts or um, there was really no kind of escape either of, of the environment. So um, throughout high school, I you know, made choices where I, you know, got into drugs and alcohol and violence myself and getting kicked out of school. And um, it wasn't until actually I met Sarah um, to where I felt open enough to talk about it. And so that's when I was in uh, 11th grade. And we talked and I was angry at God too because I had that kind of age old question of like, if God is so good, why does he let hurt happen to good people? I considered myself to be a good person. Through kind of that journey, um, we met on that kind of field. We met on the field of like being hurt. My dad, um, when I was in sixth grade, had an affair and like, shocked you know all of us he was the Sunday school teacher and the youth leader and made me question my faith and you know question you know the way I was raised and um, you know I really had to deal with a lot of that emotion anger and, and shock too um, when I was young but I it helped me to turn to the Lord I um, am more you know I questioned things but it helped me to embrace my faith I went to church one Sunday and I just remember, I don't even remember what the sermon was about, but I just remember I felt like God was like speaking directly to me. And I'm, you know, I'm 17 years old, I'm a tough guy. And uh, I'm sobbing in the back of the church and uh, they asked me, do I want to speak to the pastor? And I remember very clearly uh, what he said and that Jesus Christ loves me unconditionally and forgives me, um, that's all I needed to hear. I held on to the fact that my dad never asked me for forgiveness for a long time as an excuse to hold on to that anger. And I held on to it until I was in college. And, um, but in college, uh, one of my campus ministers said to me, um, you know, that you really need, you don't need to wait for him to ask you for forgiveness. You can forgive him without that. And really helped me to understand that the forgiveness is more for me. And when I was able to work on that and forgive my dad without him asking and without him even knowing, that helped our relationship and it helped um, my relationship with my dad and 
when we're generous and we follow what God is asking us to do and we forgive even without them knowing that we're forgiving them. It's taken years, it still continues. You know, there's still things that are kind of stuck in the crevices and the, uh, uh, you know, of my own uh, personality and my own kind of temperament that God has had to work on. And it's been, you know, like I said, quite a journey and he's given me uh, Sarah to help with that as well and, and people in my life to kind of just uh, show me love. And so the reality is we're sinners. We're all in the same boat and we all need forgiveness and we all need that unconditional love. And so I just try to, I try to share that uh, as much as I have received it. What a great story of our need to forgive because God has forgiven us. You know, when the New Testament writers attempt to describe the abundance of God's love, the overflow of grace and forgiveness, they tend to make a beeline for the cross of Christ. That's what we're celebrating today in communion. And every time I think of the cross, I think of his arms open wide. When I, when I think of the muchness of God's love, I have to pause at the price he paid to love me. And, and that's what communion is all about. Jesus was not forced to die. He wasn't outnumbered, overpowered, or tricked into it. He chose the cross because he loves us. And I, I look out over our neighborhoods, over our communities, and, and I can, I can see his arms open wide, not, not held open by nails, but by choice. Listen, God has an unlimited capacity to give, to forgive, but we have a limited capacity to receive. And if we want to live in the overflow of grace, we got to give grace away. We got to open up our hands and our hearts and forgive those around us. Listen, it's time to stop thinking that we can pay God back. It's time to pay attention to his overflow. It's, it's time to let him love you and time to love even our enemies. It's time to let his grace flow to us and then from us. It's time to open our arms like Christ and give away what he's given us. I want to pray for you. And then we're going to celebrate communion. Father God, thank you for the overflow of your grace. There's not a single person listening to my voice, who, who does not have the opportunity to come to you and say, God, would you please forgive me? I, I believe in Jesus. Would you please forgive me? On the basis of Christ's gift, the gift of his life, would you please forgive me? There, there's not a single one of us who will not receive the overflow of your grace and forgiveness. And God, I pray that standing in that overflow of grace and forgiveness, we would learn to become a people of grace a people who forgive. I know it's not always easy. Sometimes it is the most difficult thing in the world. But living in prison is even worse. God, would you help us to be a people of grace like Jesus was a man of grace? We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.